morning, Crossview. Happy New Year's Eve. I think I can say that now, which is fun. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, my name is Nolan Hodge. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, filling in the pulpit, giving Jeff a little bit of a break. We had Christmas, and I didn't know Jeff was going to mention his birthday. I was going to embarrass him and mention his birthday, but his birthday was also this past week, so make sure that you say happy birthday to Jeff after the service. Uh, so I have the honor and the responsibility of officially ending out the sermon series that we've been doing during Advent called Connecting the Dots, and we've been looking at how Jesus existed in the Trinity, how he was very much present in the biblical narrative well before the incarnation, and how he is the fulfillment of these different attributes of God. So we looked at the word of God, the name of God, the wisdom of God, and the glory of God. And now today's sermon is going to be a little bonus because we're going to talk about the spirit of God. We're focusing in on what we might call the third member of the Trinity, the spirit. But along the way, we're going to continue to delve into this mysterious union of the Trinity and see how the Spirit comes to us through the work of Jesus and empowers us to continue the ministry of Jesus. Um, and Jeff will actually be starting a sermon series about the Holy Spirit in the spring. Uh, and so this is a little preview of what's to come. I'm going to be painting with broad strokes here. We're going to be looking at the Spirit's activity throughout Scripture. Um, so I'm going to throw a lot at you in a short amount of time, especially since this is a family service. Uh, so expect to have more time in the near future to kind of digest and think through some of these things. That's my little disclaimer before we get started. Uh, as someone in ministry... I'm occasionally asked to lead prayer at group functions or at family gatherings. Uh, this is particularly common around the holidays, so Haley and I spent time with my family this past week for Christmas, uh, and I was asked to lead prayer a few times before meals, and particularly with mealtime prayers, there's always this moment of thinking like, okay, like, what should I pray about? Uh, and it's really easy for me to fall back on the old classics, uh, these old prayers that I heard a lot growing up. And to be clear, I'm not knocking any of these prayers. If they're genuine, they're totally great. Uh, it just is what it is. But maybe some of you are familiar with these prayers. So there's the classics like, Lord, bless this food. Uh, and then you can even add to be fancy uh, and the hands that prepared it, right? And, and based on the food, you could even add to the nourishment of our bodies. Uh, if you're with anyone that's been traveling, you can pray for traveling mercies, that they'd be safe getting to and from wherever they're going. And then there's this whole category of be with prayers, right? Lord, be with us. Uh, be with our plans for the week. Be with Aunt Sally and her sick cat, right? Be with prayers, and when we pray those be with prayers, I think we can mean a few things, that God would bestow some kind of blessing on us, uh, that he'd intervene into some situation, uh, maybe even that we'd simply acknowledge the presence of God in our lives. At least for me, I've heard that be with language a lot and just used it a lot by default, so much so that it almost has lost any kind of meaning for me. It's something that I say before dinner, but it's more of just this symbolic gesture of invoking God's presence. But the idea of God being with us shouldn't be just a passing notion. He has promised to literally be with us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, God being with us is at the heart of the Christian faith. If you pick up a Bible, you'll see that God is constantly reaching out to humanity so that we would experience his presence. 
And everything ties back to the reconciliation, the restoration of this relationship between God and humanity, that pursuing love of the creator towards his creation, that God may be with us and that we may be with God. And I think whether we know it or not, we all want God to be with us in a real, meaningful way. We weren't created to live apart from God, so our hearts long that we would know our creator and be near to him. So even as we approach this new year, 2024, what would it look like for God to really be with us in 2024? That when we feel lonely, he is with us. That when we feel confused, he is with us. That when we face challenges, he is with us. When we navigate difficult relationships, when we make hard decisions, when we suffer in the year ahead, that God is with us. And as Christians under this new covenant, we have the assurance of God's presence with us in the Holy Spirit. But this morning, I want us to go on a journey through Scripture, seeing the ways that the Spirit of God has always been present with His creation, and that we grow in our appreciation of Him and our awareness of His presence with us. So we're going to be looking at the Spirit of God in creation, the Spirit in His people, the Spirit in Jesus, and the Spirit in us. And before we jump into our passages this morning, I just want to talk about the word spirit for a moment as it's used in the Bible. Uh, the Hebrew word, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but it's ruach. You kind of got to get the right? Uh, ruach, and the Greek word is pneuma. Both of these words literally translate to wind or breath. So the Spirit of God can be thought of as the wind of God or the breath of God. I think keeping that understanding with us is going to help us see maybe some new connections that we haven't seen before. We could think of the wind of God as the Spirit's power. When the Spirit comes in Pentecost, he comes as this great rushing wind, right? We could think of the breath of God as his presence, that God is as near to us as his very breath. We could also think of the breath of God as this life-giving force. And especially in ancient Near East literature, breath, it represents this essence of life itself. For something to have breath, it means that it's living, it's active. And breath can even be portrayed as something that brings about life. And that's what we're going to see at the very beginning of the Bible. So let's take a look at Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2, and we'll talk about the spirit in creation. And if you're new to the Bible this morning, this is kind of convenient because we're just starting right at the very beginning, right? Start you off right. So the spirit in creation, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And it shouldn't come to a surprise to us that the Spirit of God was involved in creation. We've been talking during the series about how God has eternally existed in this community of love before the world began, and that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, as the Apostle John describes. So our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're collectively involved in the creation of all things. And I think it's worth noting that one of the earliest written books in the Bible, Genesis, uh, we immediately see a reference to the Spirit of God. I think we often associate the Spirit of God with the New Testament, but, but right off the bat, we see the Spirit here. He's not some kind of afterthought. He's central to the creation of all things. From the beginning, we see the Spirit of God has significance in bringing about this newness of life. He is the breath of God, the giver of life, and the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's kind of a strange word to use, hovering. 
There's a handful of theologians that connect this passage to the word hovering in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11, and it describes God caring for his people like an eagle in its nest, hovering over its young. So as the spirit hovers over the waters, we can imagine a bird hovering over her young or her, or her eggs, nurturing life within them. In such a way, the spirit begins nurturing life on earth as this breath, this wind, this powerful life force hovers over the water. And we'll come back to that imagery later, so keep that in mind. Uh, continuing on in the creation narrative in Genesis, God speaks by his word everything in existence. He speaks the sun, the moon, the stars, sea creatures, land animals into existence. And then finally, we get to humanity and in God's creation of humanity, we see another reference to the breath of God. In Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the nostril, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living person. This is a unique feature of humanity from the rest of creation. Our life force is shown to be this breath of God, this breath of life that dwells within us. Not only were we created in God's image, but we were also given his very breath, his spirit in our very lungs. This idea is present also possibly in the earliest book written in the Bible, Job, where Job says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And that's how we were created, in such union with God that we carry his breath in us. God was meant to be with us in such an intimate way, giving us his very life force. But of course, that union is disrupted in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve choose their own path of sin over the way of life, and they're separated from the garden and from the fullness of God. And the rest of the Old Testament, we wait for the restoration of this severed relationship, for God to be with humanity and humanity to be with God once again. For much of the Old Testament, God's presence among his people was through a physical space, the tabernacle, this nomadic version of the temple, containing the Ark of the Covenant where the Spirit of God dwelled. His presence was there among the Israelites. And then later, the temple in Jerusalem became the dwelling place of the Almighty where God's presence rested and dwelled. Yet even during the times of the tabernacle and the temple, God was not confined to a physical space. His breath, his spirit was continuing to work and to move through his people. The spirit continued to dwell in the hearts of humanity. So let's talk about the spirit in his people. We see several references to the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals to empower them and, and to empower them for specific tasks or callings throughout the Old Testament. And I'm kind of going to rapid fire some of these, uh, but pay attention to how the spirit is described with these people, okay? Uh, so Bezalel, who was the chief artisan of the tabernacle, and he actually built the Ark of the Covenant, God speaks to Moses and said, I have filled him, Bezalel, with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. Joshua, we're kind of familiar with Joshua, right? In Numbers, it said that a man in whom is the spirit is Joshua, a man in whom is in the spirit. And then we see references to the spirit of the Lord a lot in the book of Judges. So these judges are these temporary leaders of Israel up into the time of the kings of King David. So uh, Othniel is the first judge that delivered Israel from the oppression of the king of Mesopotamia. He brought peace for 40 years. It says the spirit of the Lord came upon him in the book of Judges. 
Gideon, it says the spirit of the Lord covered Gideon like clothing. Samson, the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then, of course, we have the king, King David, the ancestor of Jesus. And in 1 Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. The spirit of God is intervening into the history of his people, uniting with individuals for specific purposes. And keep in mind, these aren't the purest or holiest people. In fact, some of them actually turn away from God after they've already received the Holy Spirit. So Saul, King Saul in 1 Samuel 10, received the Holy Spirit, but then when he disobeyed God, it says that the Spirit left Saul. So we can ask the question, is there anyone who the fullness of the Spirit, the breath of God, will permanently dwell in and rest in? Stay tuned for that. We also see the Spirit of God referenced heavily among the prophets in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Micah, Zechariah, Amos, and Isaiah, they all reference the Spirit of God being with them or upon them. And I want to focus for a moment on Isaiah, because Isaiah, perhaps more than any Old Testament prophet, being filled by the Spirit of God points us to the incarnation of Jesus. And in Isaiah 11, the prophet writes this concerning the coming of the Messiah. This is Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, the line of David, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And what is the nature of the Spirit? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the, with the rod of his mouth by his word. And with the breath, ruach, of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be around a belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The spirit of the Lord comes to Jesus and rests on Jesus. The spirit fully settles and dwells in him. In fact, Colossians 1, a, a passage we've been referencing a lot during this series, Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And here in Isaiah, we see that the Messiah will come from this stem of Jesse, which some translations use the word stump. Instead, we can think of a plant that's been cut down. It's just a dead looking stump or just the stem remains but the shoot becomes a branch, and this branch is full of life, full of the Spirit of the Lord, the breath of God, and the branch bears fruit. Symbolism that the Apostle Paul will later adopt in his letter to the Galatians while describing the character qualities of Jesus, we know them as the fruits of the Spirit. And this fruit here in Isaiah, these characteristics of Jesus will be different from anything the world has ever experienced. Pure wisdom, strength, and knowledge, perfect fear of the Lord, Judgments that are right and fair, humbling the mighty and exalting the humble, righteousness, faithfulness. Isaiah will go on in this passage and to talk about the paradigms that the union of Jesus and the Holy Spirit are going to shift, that they're going to bring peace and restore all things into right relationship. So the Spirit of the Lord rests on Jesus as he accomplishes the greatest work in history. And this is where we get into kind of the beautiful mystery of the Trinity 
Jesus in and of himself, he's fully man and fully God. It's not that Jesus wasn't God and then received the Holy Spirit and then suddenly became God. No, Jesus is God for all of eternity, past, present, and future. Yet we can't simply break apart the members of the Trinity and just divorce them from one another. Uh, We confess that the Holy Spirit Uh, We confess that the Father sent the Son and that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit rests on him. And can we fully understand uh, every detail of that union of the Trinity? No, it's outside of our understanding. As Jeff often says, we confess more than we can explain. But I want us to look at a passage where this mysterious union is on full display in the Gospels when Jesus is blessed and commissioned by the Father and the Spirit after his baptism. So we're going to look at the Spirit and Jesus in that union. Uh, Now, the Spirit, uh, the baptism of Jesus is described in all four Gospels, but we're going to be taking a look specifically at the Gospel of Mark today. So Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Father, son, spirit present in the baptism of Jesus as he begins his earthly ministry. And we see the fulfillment of this prophecy that the Holy Spirit will rest on Jesus. And now let's remember that imagery from Genesis 1, that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation, brooding like a mother hen. Here we see the Spirit hovering over the water again, this time as a dove, but not just hovering over the water, descending upon Jesus. I believe there's a lot of amazing symbolism happening here in the baptism of Jesus. Not to say that the gospel writers are just trying to insert allegory into their writings to try to be clever, but I believe that the truth of God is so amazing and beautiful that it's poetic, it's profound in the way that it actually unfolds, right? So Father, Son, and Spirit are united in in this symbol of creation that will ultimately bring new life to all who believe. Jesus incarnate is the beginning of this new creation by which we all may receive new life. The Apostle Paul in his writings, he describes Jesus as the firstborn of creation in Colossians. He also describes Jesus as the last or we could say the second Adam in 1 Corinthians. As we were all born into fallen humanity through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we are reborn into restored humanity when we trust in Jesus. Jesus actually describes this rebirth in John 3 as being born of the water and of spirit when he's talking to Nicodemus, that the life-giving spirit of God is the means of regeneration, of being made new. So when we perform baptisms nowadays, there's this like creation imagery that's present there. We come out of the water as new creations through the power of the spirit. So when we trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness and newness of life, we are reborn of the Spirit, reunited with the breath of God in us. So let's talk about the Spirit in us. In Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. So the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us the same way that he rested upon Jesus. So we may live our lives following Jesus by the life force of his very breath, 
In fact, Paul, Peter, and Luke, some of the most important leaders in the early church, they have no problem using Christocentric language when talking about the Holy Spirit. They use this Jesus-centered language. They actually use these terms interchangeably. They'll use the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. They're interchangeable for them. For example, we'll look at Romans 8. Paul describes this new life in the Spirit. He contrasts it to the life in the flesh. We're not going to have time to get into everything that Paul is saying here, but just listen to how he talks about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in one breath. No pun intended with breath. But Romans 8, 9 through 11. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, the, through his Spirit who dwells in you. So the Spirit of God now dwells with us. But we could also say it's the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of Jesus because the Holy Spirit that rested on Jesus also abides in us, empowering us to continue the ministry of Jesus. So it's not that we like try to do similar things that Jesus did while asking help for God along the way. We literally have the presence that Jesus had in the Holy Spirit, so we naturally do the work of Jesus. The Spirit of God was present in creation. He was present with Israel. He was present with Jesus, and now he is present with all who believe. The earthly ministry of Jesus, it never ended, right? It continues now. It continues in us to this day by the work of the Spirit. After Jesus is resurrected by the power of the Spirit, he appears to his disciples. And even before Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out onto all believers, Jesus personally gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples. In John chapter 20, 19 to 22, Jesus said to them, Peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The very breath of God in Jesus is given to them, and by extension, given to all of us as followers of Jesus. I think it's easy for us to fall into this mindset that sometimes God will be with us and sometimes he won't that the Holy Spirit can kind of come and go, but no, we have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, so the presence of God, the presence of Jesus is always with us, not symbolically or metaphorically, not sentimentally, but actually with us. So what do we do? How do we respond? If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. Later in the service, we're going to sing a song uh, with a line that says, let us become more aware of your presence. He's already with you, whether you're aware of it or not. So we walk by the Spirit every day. We choose to follow him, acknowledging his presence in our hearts, continually turning away from our sin, the way of death, and embracing the fullness of life, his breath that he wants to fill us with. And if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, turn to him, Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is Lord, that he made a way for you to have union with God through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And all you have to do is receive Jesus and receive the spirit of God into your life. 
There's no magic words or secret initiation or any work that you have to do. His presence is a gift. But sometimes it's hard to receive a gift. We just had Christmas, and I know some of you fancy yourselves better givers than receivers. So we want to practice receiving this morning. Maybe even open yourself up to receive as we do communion together. When we receive from God, we surrender. We lay down our pride. We lay down our desire to control everything. We lay down our very lives, knowing that we were made to carry the breath of God within us. We were made to have such a union with our creator that he dwells in us. Let me pray. God, Father, Son, Spirit, we stand in awe that you who created all things out of your love and power choose to rest upon us. We confess that we often go about life on our own, not recognizing that you are near as our very breath. So this morning we surrender to you, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would fill us with your presence, that we would be open to the ways you are continuing the work of Jesus in and through us. We thank you that you're not a God that's distant, but you're with us, that you, Jesus, poured out your very self, that we may experience unity with God here and now. May we not take that for granted, but rejoice in your great love for us. I pray for those here that feel alone this morning, that feel distant from your spirit. I pray that they'd know your love for them and experience the life they were created to live, a life with you. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray to you, Father. Amen.